Milwaukee, July 1842. 16-year-old Caroline Quarles, a recent arrival to the city from St. Louis, was in search of a safe place to stay. Traveling alone as a young teenager, Caroline always had to be on the lookout because according to the eyes of the law, Caroline was a fugitive on the run. Hiding in unfamiliar houses, basements, and even storage casks, moving under the cover of night was her only option. Trusting her life in the hands of complete strangers, Caroline took a path to safety through our state. Many people, even people still today, did not know was ever even in Wisconsin. The Underground Railroad. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Bean. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this episode 30 of Badger Bazaar. 30. It's a milestone. We have hit 30 yeah. of Badger Bazaar. Well, we've hit, we've hit older than 30, but as far as our podcast, we're on 30. Episode number 30. Yeah, that is a milestone. We've gone 100%. back 20 years. Yeah. I am your host, Scott Whitman, along with me, your other host. Even for a milestone, I can't get the positive version of that. Got to get through this part. It's always so hard. (laughs) It's the milestone. Mickey Sanders! We have hit October, everybody, which is kind of odd because it was like 118 degrees today, but that is okay. Maybe you're exaggerating. I think it was 85. It seemed really odd today. It's it's pretty close to what you said. It's not supposed to be that in October, though. But this is a lot of people's... Are you complaining about nice weather in October? No, no, I'll I'll deal with it. This is a lot of people's favorite month, right? Spooktober in the spooky season. So, And we have a return. We were at this past weekend. We want to throw a shout out and a thank you to... The Fox Valley Ghost Hunters, as they put on the first ever Great Lakes Paranormal Conference in Glen Beulah, and what a time it was. That was awesome. We had a great time. We were there all three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, hung out with a ton of people. Cool it was a blast. People. Couldn't have been happier, at least for us, how that went. Not to speak of how the show went in general. And again, a big shout out to Fox Valley Ghost Hunters, Craig Naring and Melissa Clevenger. They did... Uh, a bang up job there. That is no small feat to no, pull off. Especially with what the they big did. name celebrities, and they were so welcoming and so 
I mean, we're just a couple of guys doing a podcast, and they were very friendly and helpful and supportive. But then you got all these – they got a bunch of big names. It was impressive. Oh, there's celebrities walking all over the place. Jason Hawes and Dave Schrader, Jeff Belanger, all over the place. I mean, it was quite the feat that they pulled off in uh, Glen Beulah, And I think people were more excited to see us. I'm just throwing it out there. You think so? I kind of got that vibe. I've been called delusional, but I'm going to (laughs) say it anyway. No, it was – it was a great time. Again, the whole staff there and people working for them for Fox Valley Ghost Hunters, Katie and Kara, and we, we can't name them all right here, but they did a tremendous job. As Mickey said, everybody was so welcoming, attending to your needs as a vendor, which everything was just, it was pulled off so well. It was so smooth. And eager to talk to us and share their stories. I mean, people just opened like floodgates, just so willing to share their stories and Weird experiences. It was great. We have so much. We have a bunch of stories that we got from attendees that we're going to be sharing on pretty much a standalone episode of people's personal paranormal. Like a like a, if I can borrow from Dave Schrader and Darkness Radio, our own little parashare here that we're going to have, um, probably next episode. So we're going to let you hear right from people's mouths their own personal paranormal stories. When you said parashare, I was thinking parish. I'm like. What does this have to do with church? But Paranormal I can, sharing. Yeah, there I got it. It, it eventually settled in my brain. So, Not church-related stuff, let's put it that way. And they've already, uh, they're already ready and set to go for next year. And next year, it is starting on Friday the 13th. And we'll be going to that again. It begins Friday, September 13th, uh, again at Glen Beulah. Get your tickets for that now. That will sell out. That is a guarantee. That will sell out. Great Lakes Paranormal Conference dot com get your tickets ready for 2024 already especially after how everything went so well with this first one uh this will sell out smashing success also one of the articles that i want to read for you today or that i want to talk about is from spectrum news and it says quote searching for ghosts at the sheboygan asylum so one of the things that they did at nighttime during the paranormal conferences, they, they had investigations at the Sheboygan Asylum, which we've talked about on the show several times. It's on our Wisconsin's Most Haunted list. And you could investigate at the asylum with these celebrities, right? Jason Hawes, Dave Schrader, Jeff Belanger, Adam Barry, obviously a big popular name here. You can go and investigate at the asylum, along with a couple other locations that they had. So this article says, quote, For over two decades, the former Sheboygan Asylum has remained empty, But if you ask the Fox Valley ghost hunters, they will tell you a much different story. Hello, Mike. Are you down there? Asked Craig Naring as he was attempting to communicate with spirits using an audio analyzer. He and Melissa Clevenger are the Fox Valley ghost hunters. They host ghost tours from August to November every year at the Sheboygan Asylum. I have always been into the paranormal, Clevenger said. Growing up, I had experiences, and as an adult, I missed that feeling. Now they want to share that feeling with others. That feeling of the unknown. The Sheboygan County Comprehensive Health Care Center, often referred to as the Sheboygan Asylum, closed its doors in 2002. When it was open, it was a self-sustaining asylum. It had water tower, water treatment plant, and fields to grow food. Since it closed, the two have done thousands of tours in the building, recounting terrifying experiences. Thousands. Wow, thousands. That's, that's a lot. The paranormal experience offered by the duo stretches far beyond the asylum. They also offer tours at the old Glen Beulah School. That is where Haunted Midwest Ghost Tours hosted the Great Lakes Paranormal Conference from September 22nd to 24th. 
So Craig and Melissa have uh, got themselves quite a little organization there with Fox Valley Ghost Hunters. Right, and even, I mean, like you said, some of the other people like Kara and Katie, some of them are associated with them, some from other groups, but they've got a lot of connections where they can bring a lot of people it's like in. like a big network. Them. Right. They sure worked well together to sure. pull off that, that paranormal conference, and we look forward to being a part of that, as Mickey said, um, again next year. We'll be there. Another thing I want to talk about is I have a list here. Obviously, I think all you guys are getting used to my list. I have to have lists. I'm a big list guy. This one is from a couple of weeks ago, and it's the 11 haunted cemeteries in Wisconsin are not for the faint of heart. It sounds kind of interesting, actually. Now, I don't know a lot of these because I didn't, as an investigator, I've never really done cemeteries, which is kind of something that we always kind of stayed away from. See, and uh, I, even on some of the trips I've taken with my family, my sister's always real good about putting these famous cemeteries into our trips. So like I, I've seen like Lucille Ball's gravestone and Louisa May Alcott and all, you know, a lot of these gravestones just from famous authors and celebrities and stuff like that. So I like visiting cemeteries for that reason, but I don't even have the ex- extensive experience that you'd have as far as ghost hunting. I think it'd be interesting though, don't you? I think our attitude back in the day was that too we, scared? We no, not not a scared, but it was cemeteries are kind of a place of rest, right? You know, it's so disrespectful. We, we, well, you and, know, but and I don't you were know. Scared. But I don't know that that I have that same attitude today. So, oh, I, you, you don't know, have respect anymore. And, that's cool. That's true. I'm, I'm glad that's to, been beaten. Totally out of you. don't care about that anymore. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> but I just I think my attitude has changed. I've talked to a lot of investors. We had stories actually at the at the yeah. paranormal conference about people who who do investigate cemeteries, and, and they do it in a very respectfully way. And obviously you can do that. So Well, just like visiting the cemetery in general, right? There, there's a way you can do it that's not going to be you know, disrespectful. And then, I do like cemeteries. I do like walking through cemeteries. When I, when it's I, just a feeling. When I lived in Denver, I went to art school in Denver. I went to photo school in Denver, and I loved the, you know, obviously they have bigger cemeteries there in bigger cities, and the architecture is really striking oh, of course. at a lot of cemeteries. Right. And I would do... <laughs> I would do a lot of photo shoots at cemeteries, and I shot, I shot fashion and swimwear, right? Sure, sexy. <laughs> so, like my my entire portfolio when I graduated from school was was fashion and swimwear. Can so you put a bikini on and go sit right. on that gravestone. So, so when I when I, I and I worked for a lot of agencies, and I would do test model shoots there, and we would, you know, when I would call them and we'd talk about where we were going to meet, and I would tell them to meet me at a cemetery, they'd be like, "No, yeah, wait you a second, creep. What? I don't want to see you anymore." <laughs> But then, so after they got the shots and they saw what we did, then they were happy with them because they do make really um, striking Especially uh, if visuals. there's a ghost in the background, should, right? Well, I've never, you know what? I should go back and look at all my old... That's true. I never thought yeah, of that I've never, because back then I never really looked into that. You stuff, actually but, got these models and to, to go along with it, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Some people would be squeamish, I, would I could tell They never really questioned it, but I could tell they were wondering. You know what are we gonna do? But you're so smooth there. and suave. They went, oh, right. I you know, Scott eventually, wants. eventually, you knew, I knew I would get them. They just can't get resist the so, charm. No, it, it, they made, you know, the architecture at these cemeteries made for some really striking photos, and I'm glad we did it, and I, and I think they were glad we did it because we got we, you know, we both got good work for both of our, especially when they found out you that. didn't kill them in the cemetery. So, uh, true, yeah. right? Success. So, you know, obviously cemeteries have other purposes, right? I mean, why would you not shoot swimwear at cemeteries? That's right? what I, mean, I think right, of. Of course. Sex right? appeal. There's dead people here. We need some sex appeal going on. So it works. Photographers out there, you should you should try it. That's my move. All right, this list here, number one. Remember, there's 11 cemeteries on this list in Wisconsin. Number one, it says Nola Cemetery in Park Falls. I love Park Falls. Been there many times. Never been to Nola Cemetery. The stories say the first person ever buried here was named Nola, 
and now her spirit haunts the cemetery and all who enter it. Number two, LaBelle Cemetery in Oconomowoc. The spookiness here surrounds a single grave. According to the ghost story, a statue of a young girl is said to emit a spirit that floats away to drown in the nearby lake. Well, that's sad. Yeah, Others claim that really. the statue starts emitting blood, and that you hear a lot. That's like a, Kate blood. Right, that's a right. trope that you hear quite a bit. That and speaking trope. of that, number three, Riverside Cemetery, huh, Appleton. Right on cue. One of the most famous paranormal spots in the state is the grave of Kate Blood at Riverside Cemetery in Appleton. Legend says on the full moon, the grave drips blood. Others say the stone of this grave is inexplicably warmer than those nearby. Blood is said to have murdered her family and now haunts the cemetery. And we've covered this. A lot of people have covered this now. That you know, the whole Kate Blood legend is complete BS and utter BS. She, she was didn't very kill respected and a nice, sweet, loving, maternal woman. In fact, all it does is take one trip to the grave site to see that her family actually outlived her by many years. So she didn't kill anybody. She actually died of tuberculosis when she was very young in her 20s so episodes 13 and 14 we cover that you know i i would wonder that i don't think she haunts the grave at all i mean she has no reason to none of that stuff is true but i would i would wonder that you know over the decades that this legend has come to pass that if it would manifest something right if it if if all of these people for the last 50 years 40 years talking about this legend at this grave. And being there, just the does, energy alone yeah. of people visiting maybe like does you said, that manifest something. something. So it's a good point. You know. Sometimes you have good points. I I don't necessarily I don't one hundred percent not believe in the haunting of the grave, but I one hundred percent don't believe in the legend of Kate Blood and nor should anybody else. And it could be I mean, I think that specifically speaks of Kate Blood, but there who knows what else is going on in the cemetery also. Right. Number four, Pioneers Rest Cemetery. This is in Canton. There's a barn directly adjacent to this Wisconsin cemetery that seems to be the center of all the creepy stories. Legend has it that a man killed his family and hung himself in the barn, and the spirits of the family haunt the area. There's that same story again. The legend led others to claim that because of its haunted past, the barn has been used for secret rituals by various groups, all looking to summon the dead. And I have no further information on whether that story is true. I would more than likely bet it's not. Number five, Eagle Road Cemetery in Juneau. Much of the speculation at this cemetery has a religious base. Visitors said they have seen visions of the Virgin Mary and felt inexplicable gusts of cold when they're praying. Number six, St. Killian's Catholic Cemetery, Lake Geneva. The nearby church burned down and it said the priest haunts this area. According to legend, it said you can hear the phantom ringing of the old church bells and hear the footsteps of the priest as he wanders for eternity. Number seven, Oak Hill Cemetery in Janesville. Visitors to Oak Hill Cemetery say they've seen a ghostly woman figure in flashing lights here, while more pragmatic folks say it's just a statue and lights along the walkway. Uh, Number eight, Forest Hill Cemetery, Wisconsin Rapids. Folks at Forest Hill Cemetery say they've heard babies crying. That's a no for me. Heard babies clowns, crying. Clowns and, and yeah, dolls. Clowns Would you and like babies. That? Nope, we're not doing clowns Speaking and of that, babies. we were in a doll room when we were in this paranormal yeah. conference. Not freaky at all. Think about a doll room. Like old dolls. Like, like the whole room was covered with dolls. Mm-hmm. All, all, all many, the many of them staring at us the whole time. Good times. So folks at Forest Hill Cemetery say they've heard babies crying and young voices calling out to them. The mausoleum has experienced a number of accidents with things being pushed over or falling. 
Number nine, Tabernacle Cemetery, Waukesha. This haunted cemetery is so well known for its hauntings that it is no longer open to the public. Visions of a ghost by the entrance as well as flashes of light seem to be examples of the spookiness happening here. I don't know how you can close I was gonna a say, cemetery to the What if public. you're visiting loved ones? Right. right. Unless it's not active anymore and it's not burials are old. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's accurate. Yeah. Number 10, Forest Home Cemetery, Milwaukee. Obviously, everybody has heard of Forest Home. This large cemetery in Milwaukee is the final resting place of many prominent Wisconsin folks. Dating back to 1850, visitors say they've had all kinds of eerie experiences there. I've heard many, many legends of this. Number 11, and this one we've heard of too, Glenbeula Cemetery <laughs> in Glenbeula. This one I've heard of. I've, I've been to that city. Kind of Dating recently. back more than 200 years, the oldest graves at this spooky cemetery are the source of speculation. Folks say the stones are warm to the touch and sometimes have a ghostly pair of shoes nearby. Legend says a man hung himself here and that his apparition continues to live on. They were doing hunts, uh, hunts at Glenbeal Cemetery. We talked to during, a few people during, about, the, yeah. about the legends of that cemetery, too, which neither one of us really knew about a whole lot. So we've kind of gotten enlightened on that side. So, too. yeah, right. So I, I think, you know, maybe diving into investigating. That is something you'd be uh, interested in? So I, I, I would. I think I'd be very, very selective about which ones are sure. done and, and who. And we done. can hold each other's hands if we need be. If we get all a skirt. Well, then what are we waiting start? for? Yeah, let's go now. And then the last thing we want to talk about today, last certainly not least, um, as Mickey and I come to you tonight from Badger Bazaar Studios. Heavy hearted, aka Mickey's My living, living room. room. With yes, with with very heavy hearts. Um, if you've been with us since the beginning. Or if you've listened to our uh, past episodes, our back catalog. Are we allowed to say that? A back catalog. Yeah, we're at a milestone 30, episode number. 30, we 30 episodes. I think we are. Heck yeah. A I library. Just, I just said it. Yeah, yeah. Right. I guess we're allowed to. So, and, and if you've In listened our studios. to our, our, our past episodes, we, there's, you've heard a third voice on here sometimes. Uh, Jim Cooper, who we would kind of lovingly refer to as our resident paranormal expert. Um, he was a, a, a very seasoned and experienced paranormal investigator. Many, I would say the majority of your hunts were with him, yeah, right? Absolutely, yeah. Um, very sadly and very unexpectedly, uh, we lost Jim a couple of weeks ago uh, to a medical condition. Like the weekend before this paranormal conference that he was supposed to be with? Yeah, he was. All he, weekend he was going to be with us. And It was actually the day of, um, it was the day our last episode was released. The, the Winslow and Sonette episode, we released that. And the, the very next morning, early, early the next morning, I noted that I had two missed calls from Jim uh, on my phone. And I, I it, like I said, it was the day that that episode was, was released. And it, a lot of times Jim would, would have opinions and he would want to talk about the podcast. He enjoyed being on it and he would have ideas of things well, that he, that he, he could do. And he was he was with us at Summer Wind. He was he was going to be with us at the Paranormal Conference. So he was involved in. We in had just a lot seen him a do. few days before talking about the Paranormal right. Conference too. And that's what I thought he was calling about. And it was actually his wife calling me from his phone to tell me uh, what had happened. So we've we've been trying to process this for the last uh, couple weeks. It was weird not having him be with us when we expected no to doubt. spend the whole weekend with him. You know, we, we'd call him again, our, our, our resident paranormal expert. That That's that's the circle and how we met. We I met Jim 15-ish, Jesus, years ago. Yeah, 2008, 2009 The funny so. thing is you found out after that that your wife is somehow we, related. We, 
Bizarre. My, my, my wife yeah, and him are distant cousins. Um, and not actually that distant, distant either, like second or third. And cousins. you didn't know yeah, that we had until no after idea. you we didn't met know for him. this reason. Yeah. That, I mean, it's a small world. So we, we had met in, in, you know, in paranormal circles, and then we started doing our own thing. Um, and we started the, the MPI network, Midwestern Paranormal Investigative Network, which is still around, and we're very um, proud of that. You know, so we would do a lot of this. We would spend a lot of time in this area because this is how we met. But we became good friends. And, you know, when you're doing this, when you're investigating these places and, you, you know, you're in a basement of a 150-year-old house or a house that you don't know, owned by people you don't know, and you can't see more than, you know, three feet in front of your face because it's pitch black, you need to trust the people you're trying doing to be with. as quiet as possible. Yeah, I mean, and, and you, I mean, this is a lot of intimate time that you get right. to spend with someone and get to know them really well at a different level than most people do. You need to know them. You need to trust them when you're in these these kind of strange, scary places. Especially if it's a, you know, if you're a little worried about what might happen, you got to trust the group you're with, right? And that was just so easy to do with Jim. He was so easy for us to trust and he was so easy for us to get to know. And But also Jim was much more than that. You know, he was much more, the paranormal was a, was a hobby for him, you know, but he was a, he was a husband. He was a father, obviously. He's a, a friend to many. My, he was, he was great to my kids Every time Jim, we saw him, he'd bring some baseball he, he would cards. All, right, he would always have it. Jim was, was really big into sports collectibles. And, Huge uh, Brewer fan, too. And he, his, he, he had a career. His, his main, Jim was a number of years older than, than us, but his career, for most of his life, he was retired from his, I don't want to get too specific, but his, his, his family, his dad and his uncles, had started a, a pretty prominent business in the Fox Valley many years ago. And uh, Jim had retired from that, and he was doing well financially, so he, he went on to work in the field of his one of his other loves, which was sports collectibles and sports memorabilia. And he was he would oh, my kids are into that too. And my kids are little, you know. My oldest my oldest son is ten, um, so of course they like that. They like sports and they like collectibles. And Jim, every time I saw Jim or the kids would see him, he would always have things. For always them. stacks of. The last time we saw him, he brought right. him a stack every time. Of cards. Every time I saw you the know, guy, he'd have cards for your kids. and not not like random cards, like you know Christian Yelich. Game worn jersey swatch cards, you know, big stuff. I'll never forget the time where. So my my middle son, who's nine now, his name is Jet, and he when he was five, four or five years old, he didn't know any other Jets. <laughs> you know, he was he was kind of always weirded out by it, but he kind of liked that it was unique. You know, was he an Aaron Rodgers? But fan? he's like, no, because he became a Jet. But he, so his name was Jet, but he didn't know any other Jets, but. I'm a big Brewers fan. My oldest son is a big Brewers fan. They were always on in our house. And several years ago, the Brewers had a player on their team named Jet Bandy. He was a backup catcher. You know, he wasn't much for him. But that, obviously, Jet would hear that, and that immediately becomes his favorite player as a five-year-old, right? A Major League Baseball player has the same name as me. Now, obviously, we see that name more. There's a kid in his class or in in his school whose name is Jet. He's more aware he sees it now. But at the time, he's five years old. He didn't know any other Jets other than Jet Bandy. Right. And Jim brought him one day a signed Jet Bandy signed. baseball. Oh, had to be kind of hard to was, find. It, you know, Jet was so proud. I mean, he was he loved that baseball. Just the fact that a this Major League bond. Baseball player had his name and he's got that ball. I mean, Jet loved that ball. And that was... You know, Jet Bandy's not with the Brewers anymore. I don't even know if he's in baseball anymore. I don't right. think he is. But that ball, here we are, what, five years later, is still prominently displayed in Jet's 
He's proud of it. In, of course, in, in Jet's uh, room. And that's, you know, that's, that's the kind of things that, that Jim would do. My, my wife runs a statewide nonprofit, or she's a director of a statewide nonprofit for grieving children. And these are, you know, eight, nine-year-old kids who lose a parent, a sibling. They don't know how to process this stuff. So she runs a, a, a statewide nonprofit to help them cope. It's like a support group, and they do camps. She's having a camp this weekend, actually. And they would do, they do fundraising all year. All year long, they do fundraising. One of their biggest fundraisers um, is a golf outing that they do every year north of Stevens Point. And they would do raffles, and they would auction items off. And Jim would always donate sports items to be raffled off. You know, from his own collection, not from the store. He had a very a pretty or, impressive collection, or from the right organization, his own collection. And he had a pretty nice collection, so yeah, and, it's valuable stuff. And not right, not like little cards or anything, but hundreds of dollars worth of stuff. You know that he would just give to him. He would just donate because right. he knew where that money charitable was going. Right. So generous. That's how I remember Jim. You know, we're we're gonna we're gonna miss him. I think he was there with us all weekend at the paranormal conference. Sure, which is kind of ironic, right? If and, anyone should be haunting us, it should be Jim. Right. It, you know, in all seriousness, we were thinking we were in the very beginning stages of booking something for Halloween, for doing kind of a group hunt in the Fox Valley area, Badger Bazaar kind of hunt and and, and gathering to just hang out. And Jim, that Jim was going to lead that. That was going to be Jim's baby, pretty much. And and. You know, Mickey and I have talked about it, and I just I don't think we'd feel right doing that without him this year. So, in in his honor, we're going to stay dark this Halloween in terms of any any events. Um, but that will continue. I mean, we will next year. We will, uh, I think, also in Jim's honor. Right. We will continue doing as things um, every Halloween um, as a tribute to Jim Cooper, no doubt. But you know, not just paranormal. You know, he he was a good man and. Uh, you know, when the when the world loses good people, feels a little less full. You know, just a little less, and that's how I feel right now. I feel just a little bit less. Rest in peace, buddy. So one of the darkest aspects of our history, obviously, um, the institution of slavery in America. It's very bizarre to us, right? I mean, I think it's a good word. I mean, the, the, the mindset of owning another person, right? To do those things to another person, to keep them against their will, that mindset is bizarre to us, but it's still going on. You know, we're not naive to this stuff. Slavery still exists in the world, not just African-American slavery, but many races, likely all races have conducted and are conducting somewhere in the world some kind of uh, slavery. Sex trafficking, obviously, is a form of, of slavery, it's not even a form of slavery. It is slavery. It's, I mean, physical, and we've actually talked about a lot of the original fights against that originated right. here in Wisconsin. So you know, these mindsets still exist, but clearly, the enslavement of African Americans in America is what we're referring to here tonight when we talk about the Milton House. You know, beginning in 1619 with the first slave ships arriving off the coast of Virginia, up through the 1860s when we obviously fought a war over it passing the 13th Amendment to end it. But during the years of slavery in America, you had born from this what we know of today as the Underground Railroad, which was a large network. Thousands of thousands of people were allowed to escape to freedom because of it. A, ne a network of smaller bodies helping runaway slaves, escape slaves, 
make their way to freedom by providing resources, basically, right? Money, transportation, food, clothing, uh, legal services at some point, and having them get... The show The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu is a pretty good example of, of what went on. I mean, I don't mean to insult anybody by saying that, but... That's essentially what that show is about, and, and these women who are, you know, forced to be breeders and they're trying to escape. It, it's a good example of what, and it's gut wrenching at times. So, if nothing else, it might enlighten you as to what these people went through back then. So now, by making their way to freedom, quote, making their way to freedom, that that meant basically coming to the northern states and and maybe even Canada, just to make right. sure they were out of, out of the borders. Well, and and after eighteen fifty, that pretty much meant getting to Canada. Right. That's because in 1850, Congress in America passed the Fugitive Slave Law, which basically forced northern states to return fugitive slaves to their owners because slaves were deemed private personal property. So there were federal laws requiring this since the 1790s, but the laws were pretty vague, and northern states were often able to, to get around them. But the law of 1850 pretty much closed all the ambiguity and gave much more power to the southern slaveholders in regards to regaining their um, property, I guess. Right, that's what they considered. And, and just to be specific, slavery was prohibited in Wisconsin under the 1787 Northwest Ordinance. Right. So before, even before Wisconsin was a state, way back when it was a territory from the 1790s, it was illegal to own anybody. And that's what founded the state right. even. So the, so they had the right state of mind. But then, like you say, this Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 passed by Congress on September 18th, 1850, required slaves to be returned to owners if they were somehow free. Also made federal government responsible for finding, returning, and trying escape slaves. Slave catchers held all the power and could identify anyone as a fugitive slave, and everyone accepted their word. There was no, no questioning as to what they were doing and whether it was right or wrong. Supposed fugitive offered no defense. Their word meant nothing, and they weren't given any trial by jury. They were just taken away. Due to the hefty rewards for capture, slave catchers only concerned with money, unconcerned if they actually caught the correct person even. Many times, the free black people would be caught and turned in just because they knew they'd get a reward. So, So you would... If you were a slave owner and you're looking for an escaped slave, you would hire a slave catcher, right? Which is a bounty hunter, pretty much. And as Mickey said, you would bring a captured runaway slave in front of a federal commissioner. And that federal commissioner would determine that, that fugitive status. All you had to do to prove, quote unquote, prove that he was a slave or she was a slave. Say it. Was to have a white witness... A white witness, right? A or, white person lying for you, or an affidavit from a state saying that this is a slave, which is given before the person is captured. So, right, it didn't matter if the person was an actual escaped slave or not. The slave catcher needed only to state that the accused was a slave, and the slave would have to prove documentation to the contrary. Also, when the decision favored the fugitives and slaver, the commissioner received ten dollars. When the decision favored the fugitive, the commissioner only received five dollars. Right? Gee, were so, they motivated? So think, in think one direction. Think about that. The commissioner was paid by the slave owner, and if the commissioner ruled in favor of the slave owner, he's paid more than if the commissioner rules in favor of the so slave. So guess what they did more often than not. Another fascinating point was any citizen trying to stop fugitive capture was fined a thousand dollars. We're talking about increments of five and ten dollars being rewarded. Mm -hmm. A fine was a thousand dollars. That's a 
lot of money back then. If the fugitive did escape, the resisting citizen held responsible for the monetary capture of the fugitive. In other words, if that fugitive did escape and this person that was defending them, they would have to pay the fine of $1,000. Imprisonment of up to six months also was a possibility, just because you were standing up for another human being. And U.S. Marshals were also able to deputize any private citizen to aid in apprehending escapees. So this was done... What, they, what the northern states were doing prior to 1850 is they were slapping people that came up here to recapture slaves with kidnapping charges. And that, that's what they were doing to try to thwart people from being recaptured. So the 1850 Fugitive Slave Law allowed U.S. Marshals to deputize anybody, any citizen. And so any citizen that saw a fugitive slave was able to apprehend them, basically do a citizen's arrest. And required to, because they'd be punished if they didn't. So not only was slavery legal at this time, there were all these laws put into place in 1850 that punished anybody outside of the South for even trying to thwart it. You couldn't even try to stand up for somebody. And you got, I mean, that's a thousand dollars is a huge fine back then. It's. Just, I mean, this isn't that long ago. I mean, no, it's just this in is the grand scheme you know, of things. Is, it is not. I think one of the reasons that this stuff isn't talked about a whole lot is because it's really sickening to talk about. Well, right. You know, and people don't want to. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to talk about it. They're hunted down like dogs with bloodhounds. And you get right? in trouble if you try to look the other way because you recognize that they are human beings. Now, because of this, though, because of this fugitive slave law and a lot of the bullshit with it that the Northerners saw, as well as really the publishing of Uncle Tom's Cabin, which came out in 1852, which really exposed the nastiness of slavery to whites in the North. Whites in the North knew slavery was happening. They didn't really know about the nastiness of it and how people were treated. Right. There's no internet then, right? Just the fact that people are being owned is enough that people should recognize them, them, just how horribly unethical it was. But like you said, how some of these owners would treat them like not even any kind of animal. They'd treat their pets better than they treat these people. So because of these, the Fugitive Slave Law, Uncle Tom's Cabin, it really exacerbated the abolitionist movement, and the Underground Railroad really kind of accelerated after these two things. So now where Wisconsin becomes unique in this story because we always have to do things differently. We have a lot of firsts. If we haven't said that before, we always do things a little bit differently. And sometimes the the firsts are good, sometimes they're not. But in this case... We're built different, aren't we? Yeah, we are. So the thing that makes Wisconsin unique in this story is that we openly defied the fugitive slave law. Good for us. We said... Good for us. You know, we don't give a shit about any federal law, and it wasn't enforced here. And that was known. It's well known. It, it was, you know, that's why settlements in the southwestern part of the state, like Cheyenne Valley, which I've spoken about a lot on the show, Pleasant Ridge, these were African-American communities settled by blacks, free blacks, freed slaves, escaped slaves. In the 1850s, this is partly because we had a little bit of a reputation then that you might be treated a little more friendly in Wisconsin than you would be in other states in the north. But really, before we pat ourselves on the back... Um, we didn't enforce laws the other way either. Right. Meaning slavery, obviously, as we just mentioned before, is not legal in Wisconsin. It was definitely happening in Wisconsin in the early to mid-19th century. As a lot of slave owners from the South would move up here for land, for other opportunities, and they would bring their slaves with them. People who came up here just to, to take own land and all that, but they brought their slaves. They, and thus, slavery along with them. They brought 
slaves, and they continued to own them when they were here. And this is part of our history, and this is not a part of history that a lot of people know, right? That Wisconsin uh, did have slavery. It's not talked about very much, but it happened here. Prominent people in our history. John Roundtree is the name that comes up a lot when, when this is talked about. He's the founder of Platteville. He's the founder of Northwestern Mutual. Henry Dodge, our first territorial governor, one of our first two senators, obviously the namesake of Dodge County, Dodgeville, owned slaves in Wisconsin. There's a professor, just going off script here, at UW-Platteville named Eugene Tesdall. I didn't know he had a script, but that's good to know. Actually, I think he's an assistant professor. Maybe he is a professor now. I'm not sure. But he's done marvelous work with his students over the years, uh, over recent years. He's younger than, than you and I, Mick. Um, on unco- it's, it's not saying much. <laughs> um, but he's done wonderful work uncovering information about enslaved African Americans in Wisconsin, specifically in the Southwest region, obviously, where, where Platteville is. And I've been to several seminars of his that he's spoken at. I've actually had the, the opportunity to talk with him a couple of years ago at a, a local history conference in Lake Geneva. That's cool. And he would talk about the work of rededicating several graves in Wisconsin of enslaved people. And one of these was a grave in Platteville. Um, it's obviously in, in, in an old cemetery, and it, I believe it just had an R on it, just the letter R. No, no dates, no names, nothing, just the letter R. This right. is actually one of John Roundtree's slaves named Rachel. Uh-huh. No name, just an R. So they've been working, Professor Tesdall and his students and his classes have been working to give her a history, because she wasn't just an R, you know, she was a person, she had a name, she had a history. So they've been telling stories like that. And I, and, and I just want to give a shout out to Dr. Tesdall for the work his team has been doing. And I know that they, they've done a lot of work at the Pleasant Ridge Cemetery as well, which, as I mentioned before, is another African-American uh, community in Grant County. So these are the people we need to talk about, right? Professor Tesdall, not, not Taylor Swift and, and uh, Travis Kelsey, right? But, but maybe Professor Eugene Tesdall and the work that, that he's doing, because these are about things that that actually matters. And like you said, a lot of these stories, these stories being forgotten, maybe allows us to repeat history, and we don't want to do that, obviously. So it was a horrible time, and these horrible things happened. So the fact that there's younger generations who, like you and I, we're old enough, we would have had some idea that this went on. Younger generations, they don't even necessarily know about it because older people don't want to talk about it anymore because hopefully it is part of our distant past and we'll never repeat but you don't want to f- completely forget as you said these stories will die with us if we don't tell them right, right? And so, it's part of our history and that's why we're growing because we're learning from our horrible mistakes now politically in wisconsin it was a very interesting time right so we were governed by democrats for the most part since statehood and we were a new a new state right just came into the union in 1848 Right now, we're talking early 1850s. Now, the Democrats were pro-slavery at the time. Now, this is almost 200 years ago. Obviously, the you know political parties today aren't the same that they were no. 200 years ago. And the Democrats were the dominant political party in America. But there, you know, there was some opposition to them. They had the Whigs, the Free Soil Party, right? The, obviously, anti-slavery. Um, but but they were at least, you know, they were organized parties. But they had a hard time getting any traction against the Democrats. So we're governed primarily by Democrats at the time who were allowing or at least turning a blind eye to slavery right in our own state. We could get real heavy in the weeds here with things like the Missouri Compromise and the Kansas-Nebraska Act. We're not going to run a history lesson here. But, you know, basically there was a growing disgust with the seeming expansion of slavery in America. 
and a new party was kind of loosely forming out of this, kind of loosely forming out of this hate for slavery. And they decided to gather, finally, and they had their first public meeting in March of 1854 in a little white schoolhouse in Ripon, Wisconsin. And they gave their party a name, and they named it the Republican Party. Now, because of the political climate and the growing anti-slavery movement, by 1856, Wisconsin is done with Democratic governors. So they go on a big big slide of Republican governors. State gets founded by that same group we mentioned in 1848, and now only, what, six to eight years later, they're changing. Right, because of, because of this, this entire sentiment changing um, in America, this anti-slavery. We form the Republican Party. There's a, a string now of Republican governors in Wisconsin. Obviously, the party grows in prominence. Abraham Lincoln becomes the first Republican president, and the rest, they say, is history. But now prior to all this happening, while this atmosphere is brewing, right, 1838, 39, 1840s-ish, a man by the name of Joseph Goodrich moves to the western prairies of Wisconsin. Born on May 12, 1800 in Hancock, Massachusetts, he spent significant time in childhood farming with his uncle in Steventown, New York. He was a member of the Seventh-day Baptist Church, which was a denomination that officially denounced slavery in several resolutions. So he was raised to be against this right off the bat. In 1819, he moved to Alfred, New York, where he owned a sawmill, a store, and a hotel. In 1821, he married his wife, Nancy Maxson. In 1838, he first came to the area known as Prairie du Lac, Wisconsin, which is French for Prairie of the Lakes, if you didn't know that. Pretty obvious, huh? I took French for two years. I didn't know that. I took it for seven. Je parle français un peu. That's all I know. Yes, sir. Located in northern Rock County, about 42 miles southeast from Madison, the description of the place was, quote, a veritable modern Eden, unquote. They then surveyed the surrounding land, purchased two frame buildings and a log cabin, and opened an inn and a store located on the current Milton House site. Known for the generosity toward community, Goodrich donated land for the park, a church, a cemetery, and a school, and he gave land to anyone willing to move to Milton and start a new life. He wanted to build a community, and that's what they were doing here. So now he came from New York, as you said, born in Massachusetts, became raised in New York, and he came from the burned-over district, which we've talked about before. Now, the burned-over district is referred to that not because of literal fires, but because all these figurative fires that were burning there in that area at the time, new religions forming, Seventh-day Adventists, Latter-day Saints, spiritualists, radical politics was brewing, feminism, right? Things Women's were changing suffrage, like crazy. Abolition, right? So We did things our own way, sure. even back then. Now, someone else from that region moved here around the same time and had the same kind of uh, outlook, and that was James Strang, who moved here from that same area. King Strang. About five years later. Now, Goodrich, as Mickey said, was a Seventh-day Adventist, a staunch abolitionist. And he comes here and he founds Milton and builds an inn and calls it the Milton House. And he names this after the English poet John Milton, he of Paradise Lost fame. Interesting read. I recommend it. The story behind that a little bit is... At the meeting held to change the name, one settler mentioned leaving home and he's thinking it was, quote, Paradise Lost. Then upon arrival in Prairie du Lac, immediately thought of it as Paradise Regained. And as you said, then they renamed town for the 
author of Paradise Lost as a result. So as when you go tribute. to so he builds a stagecoach in right, and it's on a pretty prominent roadway, and that's why he builds it there. It's between Madison and Chicago. 1844, the town was founded. Between Fort Atkinson and Janesville. So it's also a stop on the railroad. So there's traffic coming through here quite a bit. For a small town, uh, it's a fairly busy area. The military road ran right through there. So he built that in, that stagecoach in, at a strategic location. It just wasn't, you know, somewhere on the prairie. He built it there for a reason. He also built Dulac Academy, which was later named Milton College. This academy allowed women to attend at a time when that wasn't typically allowed. The college, now defunct, closing on May 15, 1982, uh, was Wisconsin's oldest continually operating college up until that point. And an interesting note, since we're talking about it, former Seattle Seahawks quarterback Dave Craig graduated from there in 1980. And I always remember Dave Craig Going to, going to Milton College and knowing that Milton Everybody College was always defunct, remembers right? That, but nobody right. knew they always, what Milton College was. Any interview they have of him, they, they talk about that, and he's like, yes, I went to Milton College. No, it doesn't exist anymore. Right. So there you go, built by Mr. Joseph Goodrich here. In 1855, he also served in Wisconsin State Assembly as a Republican. He was obviously a supporter of the abolitionist movement. And finally, Goodrich passed on October 9th, 1867, quote, he was an uncompromising friend and advocate of the cause of temperance and of human rights. The poor and oppressed were received by him as a legacy of the Lord, unquote. This by the Wisconsin State Journal after his death. So a very good man overall. So he builds the Milton House in 1844. It's a very unique looking building. It's a two-story, it was a two-story hexagonal shaped building with a, a two-story longer wing coming off it. And the hexagon tower had a third floor put on it by his son Ezra in 1867s, and that's how we see it today. Built as a stagecoach inn. So the the wing, or the block as it was known, um, had rental space for businesses on the first floor and living space on the second floor. So, you know, very much like we do things today, right? Build these buildings, a retail on the first floor, living mm-hmm. on the second floor, and, and that's attached to his to his hotel. Goodrich even used his own innovative formula for lime grout in the building, a combination of gravel, lime, and water. So this, he was even innovative in how he built this. Yeah, so he like invented his own kind of concrete. Right. It looks like, a, it, I mean, it is, it's a concrete building. So now this was a successful business, right? There's travelers all over the place. They're staying there. He's got, he's got the block rented out. There's tenants on the first floor, tenants on the second floor. You know, the Goodriches are doing pretty well. He's a landlord. And he owns this inn on this busy intersection, and there's travelers stopping there all the time. Now, there was also a one-room cabin that was behind the Milton house. And this is actually one of the cabins that Goodrich lived in when he first moved to Wisconsin. And it was moved to this spot prior to the Milton house being built. So, you know, basically just a, a modest, unassuming cabin that nobody really gave a second look to. But underneath this cabin, there was a 45-foot underground tunnel going straight to the basement of the Milton House. Now the purpose of this tunnel, the reason it was built, we can't say for certain, right? But knowing Goodrich, knowing that he was a fierce abolitionist, what other reason would it be for? You build a tunnel from a cabin with a trap door into the basement of the Milton House. So the tunnel was only three and a half feet tall. So if it was built for a person, you had to crawl through it. So you would you would crawl from, from the basement or from the cabin to the basement or from the basement to the cabin. So we're not exactly sure why it was built, and we're not exactly sure the exact year that it was built. So it's unknown 
why exactly the tunnel was put its in, original purpose was put in the Milton House. So, you know, again, the Milton House built in 1844. So did he build this tunnel then in 1844? So actually, how far back was the Underground Railroad being used in Wisconsin? Right. So the first person thought to have utilized the Underground Railroad through Wisconsin was a 16-year-old named Caroline Quarles. Now we have to recognize that this is obviously this was illegal activity. Right. So not a lot of this stuff was put into writing or documented because you could get caught harboring a fugitive, which means that you're committing a federal crime. <laughs> so, you know, after 1850, um, you didn't want a paper trail of this at all. Now, Caroline Quarles is thought to be the first person who utilized it prior to that, though. So this would be in 1842. But to say she was the first passenger on the Underground Railroad through Wisconsin could be inaccurate because there's there's really no way we can possibly know that. She's the first one we know of using the Underground Railroad through Wisconsin. But I would bet um, she's likely not the first. So Caroline was born into slavery in St. Louis in 1828. She's enslaved by her own maternal grandparents. Think about that. She's enslaved by her own maternal grandparents. So her father who was white, and her mother, likely a slave at the plantation, right? But her, her mother was allowed to marry another free slave. So I'm not exactly sure. And this African-American was a successful blacksmith. So I don't know. So she married this guy. Was she allowed to leave then? Was she allowed to marry him, but she had to stay on the plantation? I'm not exactly sure how that went. Her mother and her sister were dead by the time Carolyn was 16. She did have half-siblings who were white. Uh, but they obviously had many more freedoms, and she didn't, wasn't able to live the same lifestyle that they were allowed to live. But Caroline obviously was mixed, a white father, a black mother, and she looked white. So she was very light-skinned. Her father technically was her owner. So, I mean, it's, it's, this, it's this whole family, you know, that lives on this plantation, grandparents, kids, aunts and uncles, you know, and they, the men impregnate the females and then enslave the children. I mean, it's again, this is sick Screwed stuff up. going on here, man. So when her father dies, her father and her owner, Caroline was, quote unquote, acquired by her aunt. So her aunt becomes her, her owner now. And I guess when it's a female owner, they called them a mistress. So in 1842, when Caroline was 16, her mistress or her aunt caught Caroline looking in a mirror like normal 16-year-old girls do, right? But apparently this is frowned upon. And her aunt became very angry at this, so she cut off all of Caroline's hair. And that seems to be the last straw, and that's when Caroline said, I'm out, mofo, and she ran. I'll, I'll bet you she put it that way too, right? Why not? Yeah, right. So she manages, she had a friend, I guess, who was off the plantation, who was sick at the time. And she managed to gain permission from her mistress, her aunt, to see this girl, to visit her. So on July 4th, 1842, of all dates, she takes $100 from her father's money. Her father's now passed, obviously. So basically she steals $100 from the house. She throws a bundle of clothes out the window. She goes and retrieves them, walks down to the ferry, gets on a steamboat, buys a ticket, and starts her journey 
along the Underground Railroad. Now, she looks white. She's dressed nice, so she's never questioned about this, right? Nobody bats an eye. She gets on a steamboat, and she takes it to Alton, Illinois, and then she travels by stagecoach through Illinois to Milwaukee. Now, obviously, by this time, her owners had sent out bounties for her. Obviously, they know she ran away. So she's pursued by slave catchers for $300, which is the equivalent today of almost $10,000. So the slave catchers find out she's in Milwaukee. They actually get pretty hot on her tail. Actually, the conductor of the steamboat that she took was liable to pay her owner $800 if Caroline was not found, which is roughly $25,000 today. (laughs) So he's looking for her too because she got on his boat. He fucked up because he didn't, I don't know, check credentials or whatever whatever you did there because he thought she was white. Right. So now he's liable. How would you know? I mean... You wouldn't At its know. foundation, you, racism is based on skin you, color. You wouldn't There's know. There's no way to know. But it, you wouldn't, you're right, you wouldn't know, but these laws are put into place. And they're ridiculous. To make people pay attention, right. basically. Right. So he's looking for her, too. So all, all these people are looking for her. They find out where she is. She's in Milwaukee. And they get so hot on her tail that they actually find who she's staying with and made arrangements with that person to turn her in. That That person did turn her in and made arrangements for her to be recaptured, but she was tipped off. And she was then smuggled by other abolitionists throughout several known stops along the Underground Railroad in Wisconsin, which is why you know she couldn't have been the first. How would they know where to go? Right. This is a network of people. There had to have been some sort of mapping or plan that people knew how to follow. So she went through Pewaukee, Waukesha County, a place called Gardner's Prairie near, near Burlington, and finally she was brought to a man named Lyman Goodnow who's known today really as kind of the, what do I say, the father of the Underground Railroad in Wisconsin. He's kind of the pioneer of the Underground Railroad in Wisconsin, Lyman Goodnow. And he guides her, this 16-year-old girl, he guides her through Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and into Canada. Sometimes she'd be walking, sometimes she'd be riding in a horse-drawn wagon under hay, under potatoes, hiding, right? Who knows what else? And he stayed with her all the way to Canada, 31 miles into Canada, to Sandwich, Canada, which basically today is Windsor, Ontario, just on the other side of Detroit. So when he finally let her go and turned back because she was finally free. Five states and five weeks to freedom. Goodnow was 43 at the time. Caroline was 16. Hell of a guy. So she would go on to get an education, learn to read and write, marry a man named Alan Watkins, who himself was a freed slave. They had six children who all wound up having a good education. So she was able to live a productive life because of the Underground Railroad and because of this man named Lyman Goodnow. Now, many years later, Goodnow attempted to contact her to see what became of her. You know, he writes a letter, basically sends it to Canada and hope it gets to her. It got to her. And she responded. And in a letter from the early 1880s, I don't have the exact date, but she writes to him, quote, Dearest friend, pen and ink could hardly express my joy when I heard from you once more. I am living and have to work very hard, but I have never forgotten you nor your kindness. I'm still in Sandwich, the same place where you left me. Just as soon as the postmaster read the name to me, your name, my heart filled with joy and gladness that I should like to see you once more 
before I die to return thanks for your kindness towards me. Carolyn Watkins, Sandwich, Ontario. I don't believe they ever saw each other again. He died in 1884. She dies later in 1892. They did continue a correspondence. She, there's Her letters are out there, and they get pretty detailed. She talks a lot about her life. Um, she's a widow now. Her husband is gone. Basically, you know, she, obviously she's happy she was free, but she had a hard life, as I think a lot of black people did in 1860s no North America, right? Well, you're considered subhuman, period. I mean, and it's then, not going to be easy. And then there's the famous story about the Wisconsin Underground Railroad that I think most people know about. That is about Joshua Glover. Joshua Glover is a name known pretty well in Milwaukee. There's a big mural dedicated to him. Uh, on the I-43 overpass. There's a couple of businesses uh, which incorporate his name, both in Milwaukee and Racine. So he, I mean, that name is is well known. It's uh, remembered. Now, we don't know much about Joshua Glover prior to January 1st, 1850. And that's when he's sold at a slave auction in Missouri. He's stripped naked and inspected. He's about 38 or so at the time. And he's purchased, he is purchased by a man named Benemy Stone Garland. I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's, it's at least somewhat reassuring that it, we, we live at a time where I can hear the words, he was purchased, and right. get the creeps, because it doesn't ha- happen as at least as frequently as it used to, if it still does. So thank God for that. So Benemy Stone Garland purchases him and brings him to a 300-acre plantation outside of St. Louis, which is where he worked. We don't know anything about how his life was like on that plantation. To my knowledge, he didn't speak about it publicly. I don't think there's any writings about him, but obviously you can use your imagination because Joshua bailed. After two years of being enslaved by Garland, he escapes in May of 1852 and travels 400 miles until he reaches Racine. So again, there seems to be an effort to get to Wisconsin, right? Wisconsin has a reputation here. We don't exactly know how he got here or what exact route he take, or why he specifically went to Racine. The two main corridors were through the Milton House and up through central Wisconsin, east along Lake Michigan. Milwaukee and Racine counties have a handful of historic abolitionist sites that also continued up through Green Bay. So there was a couple of routes that were somewhat established, like right. you said. So this place was known and, and good for us. But when he gets to Racine, he's in a free state, right? So he gets a job. He takes a name. His name, he just he's just Joshua. He doesn't even have a last name, right? Probably didn't even know his parents. So he takes Glover as a last name. I don't know where that came from. Don't know why he chose that. I don't know that anybody does. So he chooses the last name Glover, and now he is Joshua Glover. So he begins living life as a free man in Racine. But this is in 1852, right? So he's never really free, is he? The fugitive slave law is in effect, and now any citizen can be deputized to arrest you. And any citizen can be thrown in jail for committing a federal crime if they help you. So he's sleeping with one eye open pretty much every night. So by 1854, Joshua is still living in Racine. He's working. He's living a productive life, fulfilling life. And Garland finds out where he is. Joshua is betrayed by another freedman whom he trusted and tips him off. Tips off Garland where he's at. So Garland gets a federal warrant goes to Racine with five slave catchers, goes to Joshua's cabin where he's living, and Joshua's actually at home with some friends playing cards at this time. They go to his cabin, they force their way in, they beat him up, and they drag him to a jail cell in Milwaukee. 
and they're going to take him back to St. Louis. Glover was employed at a sawmill, and his boss was a man named Sinclair, and his boss finds out what happened to him. He's not happy about it. So he relays it to another abolitionist and activist in Racine named Sherman Booth. Sherman Booth is a very well-known Heard that name historic name in Wisconsin. Right. He was also a, a newspaper publisher at the time. He was a very well-known abolitionist. So they rally the troops, right? So the next afternoon, a gathering takes place in Racine at Haymarket Square. So they had a Haymarket Square. Chicago had a Haymarket Square. Today, it's called Monument Square in Racine. It's still there. It's still a gathering place. Same exact spot. And their speech is going, and they're rallying the troops, and they decide that they're not going to allow this to happen. Joshua Glover is a member of our community. He doesn't belong to you. And they were not going to allow these people to take him back against his will. So at about two in the afternoon, the day after Glover is dragged out of his cabin, about 5,000 people, 5,000 pissed off friends of Joshua Glover show you up. You got that many friends? I, I don't. We're going to I would you. hope I do, but I don't no, think I do. I'm pretty sure none of us do. So they show up at the Milwaukee jail where he's being held in, which doesn't exist anymore, but it was in Cathedral Square Park today, right along. Kilbourne Avenue. So they show up, and there just so happens to be a construction site next door, which is St. John's Cathedral, which is still there today. But at this time, St. John's Cathedral is being built. So they go over next door, and they grab a large wooden beam, and they use that as a battering ram, and they bust Joshua Glover out of jail. And they get him on a wagon, and they sped him out of town, and along the stations of the Underground Railroad, he went until he escaped into Canada. Garland pursued him the entire way, but he was never able to recapture him. Now, what makes this case so famous is now, obviously, there's repercussions for those that helped him break out, right? They all committed federal crimes. And Sherman Booth is arrested, and he's thrown in prison. But he fights this, and he gets a lawyer, and they fight it, goes all the way to the state Supreme Court, and they fight it on the basis of states' rights, basically saying that if a state so vehemently disagrees with the federal law, they should be allowed to pass their own law negating it. And the state Supreme Court agreed with them. Amen. And they struck down the Fugitive Slave Act in Wisconsin, and Booth was let free from prison. Booth is no relation to John Wilkes Booth. Once again, we fight a fight. Sometimes it, it starts and takes a long time to get through, but this sounds like it was a, a pretty good win. So Now, the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, Wisconsin, you can't do that. And they reaffirm the Fugitive Slave Act, but... Once again, in open defiance of that, Wisconsin's legislature passed a law making it a crime to enforce the federal law in Wisconsin. Good for us. And obviously then the floodgates open. Other states do it, which pisses off the South quite a bit oh, I, and yes. is actually one of the fire starters that led to civil war. Sure. Here it is, Wisconsin again. We were a state for, what, six years and we're, we're rebels. You know, we're making badasses. Our presence known. Standing so the, up for what's right. The Southerners were pissed off. They criticized Wisconsin. And they said that Wisconsin, quote, the youngest of our states who got rotten before she was ripe, unquote. So the new Check kid ass. on the block really pissed off the South. Yeah, but, standing know, up for what's right. Clearly, our defiance of that law was the domino effect for other states to do that, defying the federal law in regard to affirming slavery and the road to war. Proud to be different, baby, and that's one good reason why. Was being paved.
Now, the only certified National Underground Railroad network to Freedom Site in Wisconsin that is open to the public and available for tours is the Milton House. So these sites are authenticated by the Underground Railroad Network, which is basically an arm. Not basically, it is. It's an arm of the National Park Service. So if the National Park Service can prove that your site was a stop on the Underground Railroad, it then becomes certified. And the Milton House is certified. Lots of places claim to be, and legitimately so, again, they're trying to be secret. So there's not going to be a lot of proof today, right? A lot of people didn't write this down. No, they weren't good about documenting things a lot back then. Anyway. Well, they didn't want to. Right. They, but I mean, even in other circumstances, but especially in one where they're trying to be hush-hush and under the table, I mean, yeah, they didn't want people to know to be tracking them. So of course they didn't write notes and everything, but that's why it's when you come across some documentation, it's, it's very interesting sure. and valuable. So, you know, a, a lot of these places who claim to be part of the, the Underground Railroad aren't certified. But that really doesn't mean that they weren't. Doesn't mean they right? weren't part of the history. So it can be proven that the Milton House sheltered at least one, at least one, and likely many more, runaway slaves. Estimates suggest by 1850 that about 100,000 slaves were able to escape via the railroad in general. Run predominantly by other black people, some exceptions obviously did exist, like Joseph Goodrich. With assistance of others, most stations weren't actually underground and were run by only one or two people. Again, most of the time they were black people. This was the only station in the country actually underground, and the whole community helped along, so Milton was a good town. According to oral tradition, these freedom seekers, as they were called, would arrive on a horse-drawn wagon in the dark of night, hidden beneath vegetables and potatoes and firewood, I guess. They then entered a trap door into this log cabin, located about 10 feet from the rear of the Milton House Inn, avoiding guests at this inn as much as possible, because if they got seen, they were going to be hauled away. They would then crawl through this tunnel to the cellar of the inn where the Goodrich family provided shelter and food. They crawled through pitch black, unsure of what was on the other side, so... That's, again, how desperate they were. They are going through these places, trusting these people they don't know, hoping that there's light on the other side, but you're so desperate because you're assuming your life's going to be shit or that you're going to be killed, and you just want to live the life of a free person, so you're willing to do any of this stuff. You're crawling through a three-foot hole in underground. Darkness, three not foot... knowing what's waiting you on the other side. If they get caught, they either get sent back to slavery or they're going to get whipped to death. Right. The, the, the thought of freedom was better than the alternative because the lives they were living were not lives at all. So as they were crawling, if an alarm sounded, they had to crawl all the way back to the log cabin and escape down to the, a nearby lake called Stores Lake. They would also re receive, once they did get to the other side without an alarm going off, they would receive hay or a pallet to sleep on. Most never stayed longer than a night or two. They would wait until another type of transportation arrived taking them to the next stop, now known as Racine or Green Bay, as we mentioned. There they boarded steamships, taking them to Canada where slavery didn't exist, at least to the level it did here. Documentation does exist of at least one freedom seeker, as Scott mentioned, Andrew Pratt being sheltered there, the only known documentation of any freedom seeker in the state. So the goal in Wisconsin is basically to get to the harbors in Racine and Milwaukee, to get on the steamships, which were captained by abolitionists, and get them to Canada. Much of the lore of Milton House comes from oral accounts. But one of, one of the things about the Milton House is that the rumors were abound about this house being part of the Underground Railroad well into the 1900s because much of that town was in on it. Now, many of the people in Milton were of similar background and persuasion as Joseph Goodrich. 
So the town was filled with anti-slavery supportive people and, trying to help abolitionists, these right, freedom seekers, right? Who who kept the secret and actually helped conduct and guide the freedom seekers. So it had a lot of legitimate oral history lasting decades. There's also a family connection between a member of the Goodrich family with a location in northern Illinois, also along the Rock River, which also has been authenticated. So that's increasing the likelihood that they were working in congruence with each other. Um, as we know that there was a stream of freedom seekers who came up from Arkansas and Missouri, up the Rock River, and into northern Illinois and Wisconsin, right into Milton. It's said that an estimated 20 or so freedom seekers actually passed through escaping plantations in Missouri and Arkansas. We also have oral testimony from Joseph Goodrich's longest surviving granddaughter in the 1960s who recounted being shown the tunnel by her uncle, Ezra Goodrich, who again was Joseph Goodrich's son and who took over the Milton house after Joseph died and told her that this is where they would bring the freedom seekers. And this is how the freedom seekers got from the cabin to the basement of the Milton house. So we have actual oral tradition of Ezra Goodrich telling his granddaughter, this is how this happened. But another thing that the Milton house has is actual written proof, is actual written documentation of evidence pointing right to the Milton house being part of the Underground Railroad, and it even identifies the specific person, as Mickey said, Andrew Pratt. In 1835, Pratt was born to a father of French descent and into slavery in Arkansas, so that's kind of all you know about his background. In 1861, he eventually came in contact with Joseph Goodrich's youngest brother, William Anson Goodrich, who brought him to Milton. Now, hidden in the papers of Lois Goodrich, who is the granddaughter of Ezra Goodrich, was found a torn piece of parchment from a diary entry. And this was found in the 1970s. The paper's cut off, so it's only kind of a partial piece, so all the words aren't there. But the paper itself says, quote, Andrew Pratt came to J. We don't know what the J means. In 1861 was cared for and the underground passage, him a job with David Platt, village where he worked, afterwards emigrated to, where he proved up. So those are obviously partial sentences that were ripped from a, from a, a diary entry. We don't know who wrote the diary. Obviously, it's very old, though, so this was not written in modern times. So it bears out that Andrew Pratt did come through the Underground Railroad in the Milton House. Now, also, it has confirmation. We have confirmation because history bears us out, because we know that Andrew Pratt stayed in Milton. We know he was employed by David Platts, a cabinet maker and a farmer, and we also know that he wrote a letter. Somebody has since come forth very recently. I don't know the exact year. I'd say it's within the, within the last decade. Oct maybe? October of 2016. So he writes a letter to the governor of Wisconsin at the time, Governor Edward Solomon, asking to volunteer for the Union Army during the Civil War. This letter was found by Milwaukee author Jeff Cannell in the archives of Wisconsin Historical Society while re researching a book on African-American Civil War soldiers with Wisconsin ties. So he's writing this letter to the governor, and he's basically telling me he doesn't want to be drafted into the war because drafted soldiers don't get the same pay as those who volunteer, right? They get less. So he writes to the governor, quote, am I 
by laws of the United States subjected to be drafted same as a white man who has rights under the Constitution? I think it is a hard case for me to be compelled to fight for a country whose laws does not recognize me as a man. It would seem to me more like being a man were I allowed to do it voluntarily, unquote. Now, he's saying this because blacks were prohibited from volunteering into the Civil War. He goes on to say, quote, I have served faithfully in the house of bondage all my life until 18 months within, and I hope you will not blame me for desiring to be counted a man, unquote. I hope you will not blame me for desiring to be counted a man. So this letter obviously confirms that he was a slave his whole life. And being born a slave, as I alluded to, most likely was written by someone else as he did not have the ability to read or write. It's unknown who wrote the letter on his behalf, though. It was actually illegal to teach slaves how to read or write. Think about that. Well, it with all the other laws that we discussed, that yeah. makes perfect sense. The governor did respond to him. He did write him back, but he did not address the question of if he could volunteer. He just sidestepped it. And Pratt did not serve in the Civil War. So He would continue to work for a man named Davis Platts. Right, as a cabinet maker and a farmer. In 1865, Joseph Goodrich's son, Ezra, sponsored Pratt as a member of the Milton Good Templars, a local fraternal organization. Unfortunately, some of the members became unhappy because of his race and tried to trick him into resignation of his membership. As a result, Ezra Goodrich would wrote a now infamous quote-unquote Negro imbroglio, calling out conspirators and expressing support of Pratt. Ezra eventually was expedited from the lodge because of his support of Pratt. And we know that he did go to Minnesota, and he married, had a family, and apparently did just fine for himself. Became a respected member of the community and worked as a barber in his later years. On June 14, 1893, Pratt died at the age of 55 leaving behind significant land holdings and money for his family. His obituary, his obituary said he was well-loved and known for taking care of sick. So even in Milton, where he is guided through the Underground Railroad into the, the Milton house. With community support, as we learned. Which is filled with abolitionists, right, activists. He still faces racism. Still couldn't be. And Ezra, the son of the founder of the town, was told to leave, too, as a result of his support. You know, and you, you see, as we've, you know, including the other members that I talked about when I talked about Carolyn Quarles and uh, Joshua Glover, the, the writings about them, which are written by the people that helped them. A lot of them, a lot of the writings are written by the people that helped them. They're filled with disparaging names. Even though they believed in abolition, they did not believe in slavery, they believed in helping these people, they didn't believe in you know, ownership per se of another person, the racism still oozes. They, they still didn't see him as people. equals necessarily. Right. We'll, we'll never know how many people came through the Underground Railroad. In, right, it's in, all speculation. In earlier histories, when you read about it, the, the number's 25,000, then it goes up to 50,000. Now the research is more like 100,000, so it keeps going up. Because right? you're finding more documentation. And <laughs> Earlier evidence. research of how many came through Wisconsin would usually say 100. Now it's closer to 150. I've seen 200 in I some I saw places. 300, as I mentioned So before. the numbers keep going up because we keep finding out new history. So we're, we're never going to know how many people went through the Underground Railroad. We're never going to know how many people came through Wisconsin. The numbers, even though they keep going up, it's a fraction 
of people who were actually held in slavery, right? Right. So now the Milton House obviously is still there. It's a very well-known uh, historical attraction in Wisconsin. It's a museum. You can tour it. Now the tunnels have been enlarged. You know, it's the same footprint, but you can you can walk in it now. Um, the walls obviously have been stabilized. I think it's about six feet tall now or so. But other than that, lined it's with stone and there's stairs the that were added and st- where the later ladders once existed instead. So in 1948, a significant amount of the block's original structure had collapsed. To save the remaining building, the Milton House Historical Society bought the building from the Goodrich family for a total of $1. The hexagon was stabilized and saved. Then in 1954, the Milton House Museum opened and became very popular very quickly. In 2006, however, Milton House Historical Society began a campaign to replace the portion that had collapsed in 1948. They called this the Goodrich Wing and designed it in the exact same footprint of the original Goodrich blocks. In 2018, a three-story immersive mural commissioned to be painted on the museum. In 2019, the mural was completed by local artist Larry Schultz. In 2020, the museum received a grant from the Network to Freedom program, allowing complete recreation of a tour narrative, including refreshed language and perspective and updated graphics and collection exhibits. One of the earliest examples of federal period architecture in the entire country, only certified underground railroad site in Wisconsin, open to the public. So even though, yeah, the Milton House is the only certified station of the Underground Railroad in Wisconsin, it's the only one the National Park Service recognizes, recognizes as being able to prove that it was part of the Underground Railroad. That does not mean it's the only place in Wisconsin still around. There were plenty of other places where it wouldn't have it there's, been there's, able to work, honestly. There's a lot of, of places that still survive today that claim they were part of the Underground Railroad. Throughout the country, not just in Wisconsin. Right. Uh, but, but there's the Octagon House in Fond du Lac, I know, has claimed for many, many years that they're part of the Underground Railroad. They, too, have tunnels, and they have, like, uh, false walls and and hidden passageways in that uh, in that house. Now there there was I think it was a, a history professor from Marion University I think came out uh, recently and said that that was not true. Said that and he was very dismissive about it and said that they you know they had no reason to come to Fond du Lac. They didn't they didn't go to that house and they were um, basically saying the owner was using that as PR for that that house and and that house has come under scrutiny kind of bad reputation over the last few years it went into it went into foreclosure the the owner of the house who owned it for a long time her name was nancy and i i had conversations with her years ago about this house and i don't i don't even know if she's still alive to tell you the truth um but she claimed for for years as long as she owned it that it was part of the underground railroad and even though i would tend to agree with the marion professor who says it probably was not part of the Underground Railroad, he has no idea. Nobody has any idea of whether that house was used for the Underground Railroad or not. Now, he says they didn't go up to Fond du Lac, they went through the Milton House, and then they went east to the harbors to go up to Canada. That's true. That's that doesn't true. mean they didn't. That doesn't mean they didn't go up to Fond du Lac. And to be so quick to dismiss sure, it. Sure, he's it's very dismissive like he's about it. Something. And again, I, I don't believe the house was used on the Underground Railroad, but I have no idea, and neither does he. And to say they didn't come up that far, they didn't go that way, that's not true either. We know the Underground Railroad was in Green Bay. Right. There's a church in Green Bay that's trying to get certified with the National Park Service right now as being a stop on the Underground Railroad. It hasn't been, and I'm not sure, uh, you know, where they are in that process. But they have evidence, oral and otherwise, saying that they were part of the Underground Railroad. Door County 
is known to have stops on the Underground Railroad. There's a loose history of there being a black community on Washington Island of escaped slaves, right? Now, this obviously needs more research. There's a book that came out about it not too long ago. But these oral traditions are there. And, you know, when, when and Nancy, who owned the Octagon House in Fond du Lac, she has lots of people who have come up to her through the years, older people, and said, I remember my grandfather telling me about the Octagon House and whatnot and saying that it was part of the Underground Railroad. Those oral traditions, to me at least, have a lot more bearing than some random professor at Mary University saying it didn't happen. Oral traditions matter, right? How do we know they didn't go up to Washington Island? We know that they were in Cheyenne Valley. We know that they were at Pleasant Ridge. These are in the southwestern part of the state. Where is that on the Underground Railroad? We know they were there. Maybe a lot of people have speculated, and he's just trying to put aside rumors. But again, there's no way to prove it you, we, we can't, one way or the other. We can't be so dismissive of these things because that they weren't you know, carving in the, the rafters saying red was here. You know, they weren't doing this. They didn't leave a lot of evidence. And, and like you said, Mickey, most of these, most of, the, most of the Underground Railroad was actually run by other African-Americans. Right. Right. So we know that there were African communi- communities in the 1850s in Wisconsin, in Hillsboro, in Pleasant Ridge and Grant County, in Washington Island. So how do we know they weren't running part of an Underground Railroad? Just because they left and they didn't leave any documentation of it? Well, especially because, as I mentioned, most of them were not run by a community, but one or two people, and most of them were black. So those people wouldn't want to be documenting it either, especially as black people, and only being one or two. And to say that that the house was just using stories of the Underground Railroad to gin up business, which, you know, and there's a house, another house in Janesville called the Tallman House, which is a house where Abraham Lincoln slept who also claims to be part of the Underground Railroad and also doesn't have any quote-unquote evidence about it. But there is evidence that they might have ginned up the story to create more interest in their building. But, again, that doesn't necessarily negate the truth. The Milton House itself did something in its past to gin up fake history about the Underground Railroad. In 1932, the Milwaukee Journal News stories said that Will Davis, the then current occupant of the Milton House and husband to granddaughter of Joseph Goodrich, reported finding six human skeletons in the tuttle. He also claimed to have found six moss-covered gravestones bearing names of Goodrich family members all within the Milton House Tunnel, as I said. The story, titled, quote-unquote, Subterranean Cemetery Found Under Log Cabin, said to have found them and other relics while excavating the tunnel. In 1934, a young girl named Janet Hudson and a small group of friends from the Lima 4-H Club, led by their f- a few parents, took the tour of the Milton House Tunnel. In the middle of a dark passage, the tunnel opened into an alcove where they found four human skeletons, supposedly. Not the first to report seeing these skeletons, but one that was well heard of. According to the historical records and stories from former visitors, Davis put these skeletons in the tunnel as part of a hoax to drum up tourism in the early 1930s. Like we were talking, that's what people will do to drum up popularity. Davis claimed the skeletons were dead slaves. Other versions claim the visitors were told skeletons were one-time guests when it was an inn, said that they died of cholera or the plague. Evidence shows that Davis even put a jail cell in part of the passage, creating an illusion that it was a dungeon. According to Milton House director Corey Olson, over the years, multiple paranormal investigations have taken place. There's reports of people talking and seeing things moving, etc. EVPs capturing voices, giving intelligent answers, but nothing real concrete. 
overall. So should we just sh- should we negate the the Milton House now? Because we know that they must did, not be real, right? They did fake stuff to gin up. Well, interest. one one guy did. So we can't be so dismissive about other places that claim to be part of the underground Remember, We can't also believe them either. I understand right. that. And just because a, you don't believe in something doesn't mean it, it isn't true. But again, until there's proof in either direction, to be so adamant and quick to to state a strong opinion is unfair, especially for something so undocumented and that we're still learning so much about. And it's such a dramatic important part of our history so it's important that we find out as much as we can because it's helping us to evolve as a society and and it's helping us to learn from our mistakes so uh, again to dismiss these possibilities is to dismiss a past that we need to learn from right so so as you alluded to mickey the question becomes now the most interesting question right of all this is it haunted right right uh, you, you, as you said, there were paranormal investigations done here. There is a group that has a, a relationship, I guess, with the Milton House that has conducted several paranormal investigations over the years. They're doing it this Halloween season as well. We actually did ask them to come on the show after their investigations, um, you know, like in November, and talk about what they found because that would be a great follow-up episode. And they declined. So I would think that you would want to get your organization and the, the knowledge that you're gaining from these paranormal investigations. Um, I want to get the word out, out to people that would know that. But they, they didn't they didn't want to, and that's, and that's fine. Now, now that's their as, prerogative, but you got to wonder what their reason was. You know, I, I would say, is it is it haunted? I certainly wouldn't, would hope, and just from the experience that I had, I wouldn't think that it's haunted by freedom seekers. But right, yeah. To, I mean, what, to assume that it's dead slaves is is kind of a Why leap. would they like, if they're if they're conscious spirits, why would they be there? They wouldn't have died there, right? As I mentioned, most of them stayed a day or two and moved on to the next you and, know, station. And why would they want to if why would their spirit want to go back there? Right. I mean, that makes no sense to me at all. From what from what I you and Jim have told me and what I've learned even from our conference we were just at a lot of the spirits will go back to a place where they were happy sure now the, obviously there was a lot of emotion emitted in that room in that tunnel in that basement so in terms of residual occurrences i could see that maybe sure but in terms of of intelligent spirits of slaves i would not believe that that somebody would have to prove that to me someone somebody would have to show me really good evidence to for me to believe that now is it haunted by the good riches sure maybe. or or even it wasn't in so there were a lot of people sure, coming yeah. and going you know in the normal part of the building too so a lot of energy in general above and below ground right. so it could be any possibility of things i i respect them they say they utilize this as, as a way of a historic pres- preservation to keep people's interest in the building and that i have all the respect in the world for them to do also i i respect the milton house or agreeing to do this, as they right. have, because a lot of times museums like this don't want to do that. They don't want to mix, you know, history with those weird paranormal people. Which I don't understand in this day and age as popular as as the unknown has become to most people that have a curious mind. You'd think, unless the story is so bad that it, they figured it's going to ca- cause a black eye, you'd think they'd want to, because it would only add. Add and entice the history that's already there. Well, and I think that's the change that you're seeing. I think you know. I think we're evolving you, that you're, way. You're, right? you're, we're seeing places like this um, be much more open to you know if the, if this is a way that you can tell that story of history to allow that to be done and to allow these investigations to happen. And, and I I respect the Milton House uh, greatly for for allowing that to happen because we need to remember this stuff. 
right? If again, if we don't tell these stories, they're going to die with us. And it's it's great that there's actual organizations that form to do this, just for history for history's sake in general, but it's such especially such an important story in our in our country's past. I mean, it's better to learn from our history and evolve as opposed to repeating it, and that's this is one major way to do that. We need to, to again, we need to continue remembering these. I, I wrote, you know, I mentioned Cheyenne Valley in my book, Finding Dairyland. I'm not plugging my book. I don't mean to do that. That's usually but, my job, so <laughs> shameless. But I, I do talk about Cheyenne Valley, which is an African-American community in southwestern Wisconsin in the 1850s, and one of the pioneers of that community was a man named Samuel Arms, who was a slave, uh, I believe, in Mississippi or Louisiana. I can't remember off the top of my head which one so now samuel arms's son otis arms uh lived in cheyenne valley pretty much his whole life and he we have interviews from him in 1975 talking about his dad samuel arms this is in our lifetime mickey somebody in 1975 right recounting their father who was a slave this is not ancient history, people. No. So, and he goes, We're not that old, so it's not that long ago. And Otis Arms goes on to say in 1975, quote, I wish that I had taken notes of all the things my dad had told us back when he was alive. They'd be nice now to refer to because a lot of the things he talked about, we have forgotten all about. He used to talk to us children about life, about how it was in the South. He'd talk a while and then he'd cry a while. Unquote. And then he goes on and to recount a story that his dad would tell about running away as a slave, running away and being recaptured by his owner and slave catchers that we've been talking about. But even his own children. And being dragged back and being whipped 49 times. And that's those are kinds of stories that would stick with you, but even his own children would and forget. On one hand, it's not the worst thing. Because it does mean we're growing as a society, as a you know, as a species. We're still treating each other very, very poorly. But this is one way we're going in a more positive direction. But again, whether the stories are positive or negative, there are stories that are that are in our past that make us who we are. So, for history's sake and for the respect of our of all mankind, these stories can't be forgotten and and gone to the grave with certain generations. These stories need to be retold because. Again, otherwise history repeats itself and we want to learn, we want to evolve, we want to remember who we were. Good or bad. Amen, brother.